Hey guys, it is Abdul for the good folks from Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Annapolis. You know, I had a little bit of a health issue lately and I lost a lot of weight, almost like 60 pounds. Now, some of that was on purpose. Some of that was from the hospital stay, uh, but I had to get some new clothes. And so guess where I'm going? That's right. I'm going to Leon Tailoring because Larry, Norm, Kim and Judy, they've taken my measurements for years and the measurements have dropped a little bit. And so they'll take care of me just like they'll take care of you. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. Don't tell me you lost weight. They'll be able to tell if you have or not. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. Well, it's been three years since the George Floyd death, George Floyd uh, in Minnesota, uh, who was killed while in an encounter with police. And so we're checking uh, with an old friend of ours, uh, my good friend, David Harris, who's a performer professor at uh, St. Louis University, or went to law school 20 years ago, which means I'm getting old. He's a professor of criminal law at the University of Pittsburgh. So, Professor Harris, my friend, David, how are you doing? Always good to chat with you. Abdul, it's great to be back with you. Uh, so let's chat. Uh, three years since George Floyd. George, since George Floyd, uh, how would you how would you describe the state of policing in the United States these days? Um, I would say the state of policing is um, not great for a whole bunch of reasons. I don't think it's quite what we might have expected in the immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, but neither has it been uh, defunded or eliminated, as I think a lot of people were thinking it might be. There has been, to my mind, some real positive changes. Um, and, you know, when the situation changes, the context changes, now we've had crime go up for several years in a row. People want something that responds to the actual problems on the ground, not somebody's theory. So it's been a very interesting time with some positive developments, maybe not enough, uh, but some things to talk about. Uh, what would you say are some of those positive developments? Well, I would say that there has been a, uh, a real uh, uh, opening to the idea that some of the things we have been asking police to do for years are not well suited to them and they don't want those jobs anyway. And so what you see is, for instance, in any number of cities, uh, including right here in Pittsburgh, cities have opened um, themselves up to starting a new kind of crisis response. We know we have people in mental health crisis, in crises involving homelessness, and drug addiction. And we know, and the police know, that they are not the ideal people to respond to those kinds of crises. So you see an increasing number of cities, cities like Denver or it's Pittsburgh or it's any number of other places, creating co-responder units. These are units that will include a public safety element, an officer who might go with the team, but the team is basically made up of psychiatric workers, social workers, medical workers, and they go to try to give the kind of services that a person in a mental health crisis will need. You don't need people with the handcuffs and the badges and the guns to see to a mental health crisis. So I look at something like that as a very positive move. We've also seen, I think, a lot of change involving uh, acknowledging that public safety is more than just safety from crime. And we're looking for ways to make that a reality across a whole bunch of dimensions, preventing violence in the first place. A lot more funding and support for uh, 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 community-based uh, groups who are working to stem violence. Now, some of those things have worked some uh, pretty well, some of them not as well. But those are some of the things I see as positive changes 
even though there are some very significant challenges out there. It's interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's interesting to bring up the mental health issue. Because here uh, in Indianapolis and Marion County, uh, our sheriff's always said that the jail, unfortunately, is, is the biggest provider of mental health treatment these days. Oh, it's so true in so many places. I think the two biggest providers of mental health in the entire nation are the Cook County Jail in Chicago and the L.A. County Jail out in Los Angeles. And that's just not how it should be. I mean, this all stems from uh, the elimination of mental health care back in the 1980s, deinstitutionalization. A lot of those institutions were really hell holes, and we needed to get people out of them. But what they were supposed to be replaced by was a series of community-based institutions in which people could live decent lives. Instead, what we got is nothing like that, no resources, and people out on the streets when they obviously needed mental health care. And we're dealing with that now, and it shouldn't be a police problem. Our guest on the program today is an old professor of mine, David Harris. He taught me criminal law at the university, at St. Louis University back in the early 2000s. Uh, now he's a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in criminal law and policing. So we're having a conversation about police work here in the United States uh, three years after George Floyd. Uh, David, you mentioned some of the challenges that are still existing. Uh, explain for audience what some of those challenges are. Well, I think the initial challenge was to the actual existence of policing as it always existed, the so-called defund or eliminate policing ideas. And those ideas, I think, while they're still um, heard in the activist community in some places, uh, I think the public has really rejected them. Uh, It wasn't simply a matter of a culture war. You look up in in Minneapolis where that uh, phrase was first heard right in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and the whole city council was on board with eliminating the police department. When that was put to a vote, the voters voted it down. And it was primarily voters of color who were voting it down. They knew that they needed a different kind of policing, but policing nonetheless. And it's so, interesting to, to bring them, not to interrupt you, but uh, Eric Adams in New York sure. City, I want to say the mayor of Atlanta, the mayor of Baltimore, and also uh, yes. Seattle, which I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time in, uh, the, their mayor was not a big defund the police person, but his opponent was, and she lost. Yes, Yes, that's right. And we've seen this play out in a number of places, exactly right to, to point out New York and many of those other places where that has that has come about. Um, the, the One of the most significant challenges that police are facing as they adjust to this new world and they get new training and they have new policies and they're doing things like intervention training so that They train themselves to intervene when one of their numbers stepping over an ethical or use of force line. Uh, They're having tremendous difficulty filling their ranks. Recruiting has turned out to be an incredibly difficult thing. The economy is obviously very vibrant, so people have lots of choices. Uh, But more than that, um, they're, they're facing difficulties in getting people to sign up for the job. People see that it's a difficult job. And, you know, frankly, I mean, there's an example. Pittsburgh here, we're authorized for 900 sworn officers. We're down around 800. And they just are having a struggle to fill those places. And lots and lots of police departments are facing that challenge. So that's going to be con- that's going to continue to be difficult for some time. Um, also, Professor, too, I uh, also want to say uh, another challenge that's out there, too, uh, is the fact that uh, the relationship between the, the, the police department and, and some, I won't say all, because never use words like some, like always and never, uh, but some communities, uh, particularly communities of color, uh, still isn't where it should be. 
Oh, yes, that is so true. You know, I, I don't want people to have the wrong impression. In my experience and looking at the data, uh, communities of color want the protection and the safety that all Americans should be getting from their public safety people. But they want it done in a way that is respectful and helps them in the same ways it would be for any other community. That's the real challenge. Um, and for years, what's happened is instead they've been both over-policed and under-policed. Over-policed in the sense that, you know, New York and Philadelphia stop and frisk. Everybody's thrown up against a wall. You can't send a kid down to the corner store for a quart of milk without that happening. And then under-policed in that they don't get a response when things are really bad. So what we have to do is move to a point where our policing is comprehensive. It's focused on the entire community, bring them the the good level of respectful and dignified and constitutional service that everybody knows they should get. Our guest on the program today is David Harris. He is a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh. He specializes in criminal law, and he's also my criminal law professor uh, 20 years ago at St. Louis University. So we're talking today about three years after George Floyd. How has policing changed uh, to fund the police movements, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, professor Harris, uh, there was a story on political about technology recently and the body cam movement, particularly body cams when it comes to uh, police and police work. Uh, how have body cams sort of changed the way policing is done? Well, I think they have had some change, uh, uh, had some good points, uh, but it's usually a mistake to put all your eggs in the basket of technology, no matter what that technology is. I count myself as an early supporter of body cameras. I was actually writing about body cameras back in the uh, like 2009 and 10 before they were really on the scene in the U.S. And I pointed out that I thought they had a lot of promise, and I still really think so. But they don't solve all the problems. What they can do, and what we've seen them do in many cases, think of uh, Laquan McDonald's case in uh, Chicago, which wasn't a body cam, but it was a camera system. Think of the case of the gentleman down in South Carolina who was killed uh, when he ran away from a police officer, and that was caught on a cell phone video. Video uh, in whatever form, body cameras, whatever, has the potential to put certain facts beyond dispute in a way that was not the case before, especially when somebody ends up deceased in an encounter with police. There's usually just one side of the story. Now that camera also tells a side. But we have to be careful. We have to understand that the camera doesn't catch everything. It doesn't catch what's beyond the lens. It doesn't catch what happened before or after the camera was on. So it's been a help. It has been it is something that can assist both law enforcement and public accountability, but it can't do the whole job. And it does not change the legal fundamentals, things like use of force law. All that still remains. And so body cameras, part of the solution, but not a panacea. Uh, so in addition to body cams, what should police be doing uh, to, uh, do, to do a better job? And what can the public do to help police do a better job? Well, just as an overall uh, um, matter, Abdul, I think that the most important thing we can do is learn to work together and learn that um, this is a, an endeavor that both police and citizens have to take responsibility for. That's actually the true meaning of community policing from way back. 
Uh, it would be a co-production of public safety. So uh, the police have to be there to give the public the kind of service and safety uh, that they need uh, in informs that are respectful and legal to everybody. And that has not always been the case. The police have to accept that they have to be accountable and transparent. And that hasn't always been the case. And the public has to understand that not every mistake by police is worthy of criminal charges. Uh, But you can't simply take the position that we're not going to have any police. We've seen where that can lead uh, or that police are going to be perfect. We can do a better job. We can demand a better job from our public safety people, uh, but we have to be willing to support them in their efforts as they work to that. Uh, speaking of which, and I thought you make an interesting point that not every offense rises to the level of, of criminal charges or, or criminal offense per se. Uh, but what about the whole issue of qualified immunity? Uh, that police have immunity while they do their jobs. Uh, how does that work? Is it, is, it, is it sort of standard all over the country? I know there was some movement at the, at the federal level to maybe sort of scale back some of that qualified immunity. Oh, boy, what a question. You know, qualified immunity is one of those very complicated legal constitutional doctrines. Basically, what it what it does is it says that unless it was absolutely 100 percent crystal factually clear that the police officer knew that the police officer was violating your rights, it essentially doesn't count in court later on if you try to sue or if there might be criminal charges. Um, It's just, you know, it's like this thing that had a place in the law decades ago, but it has grown to such an extent that basically shields police from any kind of court-based accountability later on, no matter how bad it was. That's a doctrine that basically has to go. And the Supreme Court has shown no willingness to do it. Unfortunately, Congress has not shown any ability to do anything on this score, even small things. Um, I really think that that doctrine, uh, its time has come and gone. Uh, We need accountability in law enforcement. Nobody says law enforcement should be perfect, but they should be held accountable for really egregious actions. And qualified immunity protects them in ways that are just not right. So what do we what do we how do we replace it? What do we replace it with? Well, what we replace it with is a regime in which uh, there is a lot more transparency. Uh, Transparency can lead to real accountability. In most states, as a citizen, you can't know what your police officers might have been disciplined for, what that discipline was, how common it is uh, to be disciplined, whether it seemed adequate. And in most states, uh, there's binding arbitration in lots of places that keeps police from being disciplined, restores them to the force when they've been fired. Those kind of things would actually be far more effective in getting the small number of people who don't belong in in law enforcement out of it before they create some kind of a catastrophe like somebody getting shot. Um, That, to me, is the real solution, not having to sue people later in court after they've killed somebody. Our guest on the program, David Harris, uh, professor of criminal law at the University of Pittsburgh, my former law professor in criminal law at St. Louis University 20 years ago and some change. So we're just talking today about uh, criminal law, uh, police officers and police work. Uh, 
David, uh, one question I've always kind of wondered, and as we talk about you know, police reform and more accountability, uh, do we worry about sort of the pendulum maybe swinging too far, that, that we tie the hands of police officers, that they, they're afraid, they're literally afraid to do their job and will only do what's absolutely necessary to do? Yeah, I've heard this. You know, it's, it's sometimes called the de-policing argument that uh, if you if you put too much on police, if you scrutinize them too hard, uh, then they will not do their jobs. They'll sit in their cars. Uh, I think that that's frankly insulting uh, to uh, the good officers who are out there who are out there to do a decent job, who know how to do it. Uh, people, there isn't, there aren't two binary choices. We're either on or we're off. There's only one way to do this job, or you just simply sit in your car. Um, I think that the vast majority of them want to do things the right way and will go out of their way to serve people. That's why they get into the job. And what we have to do is understand. Uh, that it is not an option to do the job one way and to do it poorly, for instance, with using too much force too often against certain people. Um, Those kind of things are just not acceptable. And civilians, people who are not law enforcement, should have a voice in police accountability. I know that hasn't always been acceptable, that kind of civilian oversight in law enforcement circles. Um, but if you're not willing to do the job in the way that the citizens want it done, maybe you should think about something else. Uh, final question for you, my friend. Uh, what do you see the future of policing looking like here in the United States over the next five to ten years? Well, that recruiting question is going to remain difficult, I think, for a while. What we have to do is insist that we get the right kind of policing in every community. At the same time, we have to give officers enough support so that they can raise their families, so that they can uh, they can be well on the job, uh, so that they're not overwhelmed. We need to take off their plates the kind of things that aren't really police business, like responding to mental health crises. Uh, I think if we do those things with a strong dose of transparency and accountability, there's a better future ahead. It'll never be perfect, but it can be better. Our guest on the program today has been my old criminal law professor, David Harrison, out at the University of Pittsburgh, teaching criminal law. So, David, my friend, as always, always great to talk to you. Always appreciate uh, your insight on everything. And thank you, my friend, very much for being with us again today. Abdul, it is so good to be with you every time. Thanks a lot. Hey, and it's like the old saying, angels and ministers of grace defend us. Another Star Trek reference, by the way. I just thought I'd (laughs) get that in there. It's something, David, I used to do all the time in law school. So, David, thank you very much for being with us, my friend. Live long and prosper, dude. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.